The VO Meter, measuring your voiceover progress. Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode 20 of the VO Meter, measuring your voiceover progress. We've got a great episode for you today. We've got an audiobook narrator and casting director from Blackstone Audio, Mr. Grover Gardner. He's a great guest. He's got over 30 years of audiobook experience today. Uh, but before we get to him, we've got current events. So what have you been up to, Paul? So much. Unbelievable things happening. All right, Jerry. All right, well, <laughs> that, is that why I went with that? Okay. No, a couple of exciting things, actually. Um, I booked my first job on Podalgo this week. Yay! So for all what your, was it, for? it was for a, uh, an e-learning piece for a company in Holland, the Netherlands. And for those of you who have been asking or worrying about your results on pay to play, sometimes it takes a long time. I was discussing with somebody on Facebook about how I've been with Budalgo for two years now, and this is my first job booked. So not the greatest shooting yeah. percentage. But I stay with them because I love the founder and, and owner, Armin Hirschtetter, so much. And I love the, the way the company operates that they are the only pay-to-play I'm with now. I think I mentioned that last episode. And finally, uh, mm -hmm. I'm glad to say I booked a job there. Congratulations. I'm, Thank you. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot to love about Bodago. It's probably got the most affordable plan um, like for an online casting site. And they actually have more than one payment plan. Like most of the other ones, it's just $400 a year. This one actually has a semi-annual and a monthly one, which I feel is way more accessible. Like you're not locked in. You're not going to regret it if you did, your investment doesn't come back at the end of the year. Like it might be a, like you wouldn't be upset if you lose $20 in a month. You're like, Meh, I tried it, didn't work, whatever. Yeah, I did the month to month for quite a while, actually. And Armin will even let you put your membership on pause and not kick you out. Um, so you don't have to pay the monthly Ooh. fee. So if you're having like a rough couple of months, you can stop the membership or pause it. And then when you're ready, come back. So I actually have done that too. Yeah. And for being a one star or a one man band, Armin is just, I mean, his customer service is flawless. He I mean, he's like, he's always available to answer questions or to help troubleshoot issues with the website. He's, um, he's very open to listener feedback. The only thing I will say about Badago is that it is, um, they do tend to have specific niches for the kinds of products that they, excuse me, for the kind of projects that they cast for. A lot of e-learning narration, a lot of uh, narration that's being translated from one European language into English, uh, so overdubbing, things like that. Um, corporate narrations, trainings, um, what's the word I'm looking for, like seminar audios that you might have in a big uh, trade show, excuse me, trade show audio uh, for booths and stuff like that. So if those aren't niches that you're strong in or that your voice is suitable for, you might not enjoy much success from that. It's just something to be mindful of. Also, they also are um, they're very like since it is a foreign client, for the most part, they are looking for kind of a mid-Atlantic neutral accent. Uh, whatever that is exactly is debatable, but what it means like they as long as you're easily understood, you don't have any regionalisms to your uh, to your voice, to your to your accent, um, then you might enjoy some success for them. And one other thing I'd like to point out about Podalgo is they do do quality checks. You actually have to have your audio approved by, I think it's a production team, but I think it's basically Armin listening. So Armin. <laughs> there, right. So there is, and the standards are real. I'm here to tell you because last week. I put through an audition, and I got an email back from Armin saying, this audio has some issues, um, and I'm not going to send it to the client. And I listened back, and wouldn't you know it, I copied over a breath into the room tone that I didn't know I had done. 
and put that through every dead space in the audition. So he was absolutely right. It sounded like garbage. I had even more respect for the company because of that quality assurance being there. I didn't feel slighted because he was right. It sounded like crap, and he was right to point it out. (laughs) Yeah, that individual attention. Uh, Armin, if you're listening, we love you. Thank you so much for Badalgo. So other current events, I had put together some demos for my children. I think I mentioned in one of the episodes that they were assigned to a casting agency in New Zealand because they were looking for parents who had kids around. They aren't necessarily professionally trained voice actors yet, but they're working towards it. Yet. Right. (laughs) So this agency was just looking for anyone who had kids because I guess they're anxious to have some authentic voices on their roster. So they were signed with them. And just for fun, on a snow day, we put together some stuff here in the studio with my oldest two. And because I just have no hesitation about anything ever, I sent it to all my agents and said, Ed, you guys want some kids? And I'm happy to say they were signed to four more. So I'll give you mine. Right. <laughs> They're now with four of my, my agents uh, for voiceover talent. So That's we'll see incredible. if they get any, uh, any traction. They have one audition in already and haven't haven't booked the job yet but we're hopeful start earning your keep kids <laughs> yeah i, jo- I was joking with one of our friends that the real reason is that i want them to understand acoustics and how much they're banging on the floors downstairs when they're trying to practice their roller skates in the kitchen or they're wrestling with each other in the in the playroom i can show them and say look your audition's ruined because of what what your brother did downstairs <laughs> that's my evil plan <laughs> I thought you were just going to, like, leave them in there to record, and then you just, like, banging pots together in the kitchen or something like that. Well, the whisper room does have a lock. I think it only locks from the inside, though, so that might not work. Careful. Don't want them to pass out in the booth. I don't know how good your ventilation is. It's pretty bad. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, what's been happening in your VO world? Let's see. This month, uh, we've got some exciting new changes to our membership program with the Global Voice Acting Academy. Um, We are sort of transitioning, like, Originally, what we had right now, we had two peer-led workouts a month. This is an opportunity for people to work with myself or my coworker, Mariel Naval. You might have seen her on uh, through the various Facebook groups. She's an incredible uh, talent and a real good ear for um, for voiceover and some great directing. Uh, but anyways, we had two of those a month. And then we also had what was called these Elevation Q&A webinars, which is like an hour, hour and a half long webinar where you get to pick the brain of a VO pro. Usually it's Christina Malizia or David Rosenthal, but occasionally we'll have another guest. But we noticed that uh, as our membership grows, we our attendance at our workouts started to be higher than our Q&As. So we're like, huh. So Christina Malizia had the brilliant idea why don't David and I lead workouts as well so that we had like, so we officially or effectively double our number of workouts. Everybody's happy. Everyone gets to, to practice giving and receiving feedback and getting some from a working pro as well. So uh, everybody's happy. So <laughs> I will be announcing that um, at the beginning of the month and I'm really excited about it. That's awesome. We also have a new coach that we're working with, uh, the amazing Carol Monda. Uh, she is a uh, does quite a bit of audiobook work. She's got 400 titles to her name, but she's also uh, very successful as a commercial as a commercial actor. Um, <laughs> she's from New York. It's okay, uh, but as a commercial voiceover actress, um, she's got some some very large clients like the Discovery Channel, Turner Classic Movies, uh, the Guggenheim Museum, McDonald's, 
um, quite quite a versatile actor. So I just uh, I interviewed her yesterday to talk about an upcoming class that we have uh, at the end of the month. So it was great. Lots of fun. It's all about subtext. Uh, it's for audiobook narrators. It's called Subtext, Telling the Story Beneath the Words. So um, by the time this episode is released, the live webinar will have already happened on January 23rd, but you can still see the recording, uh, but just by going to our website and purchasing it after the fact. So awesome if you want to know how you can... Uh, yeah, definitely. So... Some more advanced techniques for trying to get those more nuanced and layered performances in your reads. Cool. So we'll get to our featured guest in just a moment. But before we do, we're back with this week's Questionable Gear Purchase. All right. So this month's Questionable Gear Purchase is I bought a 416. I've been lusting after them for a long time. And I finally found one at a ridiculous price. It started out almost as a joke. I was shopping because Mo Rock, friend of the show, was looking for one. And I said, I'm on the case. I'll find one. <laughs> so <laughs> I started shopping on, on eBay and, and Reverb and, and Craigslist, anywhere I could find. And right before I found this one, Mo actually bought Simon Vance's, which uh, is a great story. But she doesn't need one anymore is the, is the bottom line. But I said I already found this one on eBay. And I said, I'm going to take it. So I brought it home and... Looked through all the all the online stuff I could find about counterfeit ones. It looks to be legit. I actually opened it up and looked at the circuitry inside, and it looks pretty nice. So unless I've been duped really well, it seems to be legit. Now, what I wanted to do was actually a comparison between the mic I have been using for commercials and, and promo and, and video game stuff, the Audio-Technica AT4073A. It compares very favorably to the 416. I actually have them here lined up side by side with a mic swisher. So I'm going to do a quick read with both. And you, the audience, tell me which one you think is better or if there's really much of a difference. So first on the 4073A. We've dreamed of this since Star Trek's holodeck. Immersive worlds that fool our senses and create augmented and virtual realities all around us. We want to interact with these systems and environments naturally, talk like we usually talk, and use our body to convey meaning. And now I'm on the 416, same bit of text. We've dreamed of this since Star Trek's holodeck. Immersive worlds that fool our senses and create augmented and virtual realities all around us. We want to interact with these systems and environments naturally, talk like we usually talk, and use our body to convey meaning. All right, so again, that's uh, those two mics side by side. Let me know if you think there's much of a difference. I'll, I'll tell you my opinion. They sound almost freaking identical. Uh, the Audio-Technica is an amazing value for what it is, and I'm having a hard time justifying having the 416 because they sound so close. But let me know what you think. Send us a, a comment on the website, and we'd love to hear. It's a tough choice. I mean, I like I personally felt like the, the 416 had a little bit more clarity and might have been more sensitive, but as you've told us many times before, you don't necessarily want the most sensitive mic. Right. And it's a tough call because, I mean, it is an industry standard, and you could, like... Um, I know it could help your brand if you list that on your website that you have it. Um, That's kind of the reason I'm thinking about keeping it. Yeah, I know. Go ahead, finish that thought. I know what you're going to say. I was just saying some some producers don't give a crap about what mic you use, but others do want to know that you at least have a like some form of or professional professionally recognized microphone. 
So, I mean, that's a tough call, but I will say like, cause I mean, I, I use my 416 for just about everything. Um, and as it's a wonderful travel mic too, durable, it's lightweight. Um, it works well with any interface, like even the budget ones. And it's like, I think it's just a useful mic to have if you can afford it. Yeah. But, so uh, that 473, like, yeah, might not have been as accurate. And like, it, it had the kind of, I don't know. I just want to say it had like this sort of smooth, it smoothed the edges. That's what it was. Um, it was very pleasant on your voice. So it's a tough call. And I'd love to hear our audience's thoughts as well. All right. So we will get to our interview with Grover Gardner in a few minutes. But before that, we have our VO meter shtick with fellow talent Stephen George. And Stephen's going to tell you about how a little bit of confidence went a long way in joining his latest agency roster. <laughs> Hey, everybody, it's time for the VO meter shtick. What did he say? It's time for the VO meter. Oh, never mind. The VO meter shtick. Oh, got it. This episode's VO meter shtick features Stephen George, voice talent based in Georgia, and he's going to tell us about his very first agency and the unique way he went about getting signed to it. So, Stephen, welcome, and can you tell us how you got that agent? Absolutely, Paul. Thanks for having me on. I was doing some research on some agencies uh, because I had never really registered for one and really kind of wanted to get to know what was in the community and who was attached to what and that sort of thing. And I came across this one and clicked on it and was reading around, looking at some of the staff, and they also had a blog. So I jumped into their blog section, and they had a, a... fairly recent post about how they were trying to help their VO talent protect the, the rates that they were being paid. And that's not something in this day and age that you hear a lot about. And so I was really impressed with them with that. So I immediately sent them an email uh, and just said, you know, hey, I appreciate everything you're doing for us and trying to protect the rates. And that was it. I didn't ask to join any of that. So I sent them the email and didn't get any response, which is not unordinary for us, right? We send out dozens of emails every week. We might hear back from one. So it was not a big deal. Well, so I kept moving forward in my career, and then over the holidays, I happened to be traveling where this particular agency was, and on their website, it had said, you know, feel free to stop by and say hello if you're a talent, and be sure to drop off your demo when you're here. So I just thought, well, you know, I've got a couple of hours. I'm going to go in there. What do I have to lose? So I walked in and introduced myself to the talent coordinator, who was beyond friendly to me, and they also had one of their audio engineers there. Now, because it was the holidays, it was very slow and in the middle of the afternoon. So they were very respectful of me just kind of walking in off the street and they offered to even give me a tour around the facility. And when I, before I left, um, they asked me to make sure that I submitted and follow up with them in a couple of days. And it was really a situation where, like I said, I had nothing to lose. And it was just an amazing opportunity. Um, 
And I sent them a, a follow-up email two days later that just said, you know, thanks for letting me sort of uh, bombard you <laughs> unannounced uh, in the middle of the afternoon one day and giving me a tour of your facility. I really appreciate it. And here's the demo that you asked for. Within a week, I heard back, and they said that the demo was where they wanted it to be and asked me to join their agency. This was my first agency attempt. I had never, you know, even thought about um, going to an agency before because I was still fairly new in voiceover, and I wanted to make sure that I had the talent that I thought could bring something to the table. A lot of people, you know, are gung-ho about Join asking to join agencies, and I really wanted to make sure that I had something to bring to the table. And like I said, the other piece, of, the most important piece of that for me is, you know, I did that research up front. I would really just like to say thanks to Kelly and Gerard and Ross. Um, they were all super nice, and I'm excited to work for them and to see what we have in store in the future. <laughs> Hello, everyone. We are now moving into our Bidalgo Call conference room with the illustrious Grover Gardner. Now, Grover has over 30 years of experience in the audiobook industry. He's won numerous awards for his narrations. He's got over 20 audiophile earphone awards. He's uh, been nominated for multiple audio awards from the Audiobook Publishers Association and has actually won one as well. He was even named the Audiobook Narrator of the Year in 2005 by Publishers Weekly, so I'm sure he's got a wealth of information to share with you guys. So let me present to you our guest, Grover Gardner. How are you doing, Grover? Fine, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Grover, our first question, really, that we ask all of our guests, but our first question for you this evening is, how did you get started in the audiobook business as a whole? Well, I was a big reader when I was a teenager, and I was also interested in acting. Well, I was. And I thought that reading books out loud would be the greatest thing ever. And when I was in graduate school in Washington, D.C., studying acting, I had de decided that I never wanted to wait tables. I thought there was something better I could do. And I, I found out that there was a studio at the Library of Congress where they recorded books for the blind and physically handicapped. And I thought, wow, what a great job that would be. It took me about six months to work up the nerve to call them and ask for an audition because I knew there were brilliant people like George Goodell and Alexander Scourby and people like that reading books. I thought, well, I don't have a chance. But I called up and I, they gave me an audition and I went in and I read and they hired me on the spot, which I later found out was very unusual. It usually took six to eight months to get cleared for the work by their numerous, you know, red tape things. Anyway, so I started doing that and then about three, three years, that was 1981. And about three, four years after that, a woman who worked there, Flo Gibson, started her own audiobook company uh, so she could record her favorite classics. And that was called Audiobook Contractors. And to support her own catalog and work, she decided to outsource to a company called Books on Tape, which was one of the big early audiobook companies in California. And so she got a contract with them, and she brought a bunch of us over from the Library of Congress studio, and we would go over in the afternoons and record in her 
her studio, and that led to work in the commercial audiobook industry, basically. That was kind of it. And uh, then Books on Tape asked me to work at home because they needed more books. And that was something publishers were starting to do, was to set people up with cassette decks and things in their house. Nice equipment, but not, you know, not too elaborate. And uh, so I started working at home in a studio, you know, take a powder room and turn it into put pillows on the walls. <laughs> and uh, then, you know, one thing led to another. That was So that was kind of how I got started. And then... I, I did things for books on tape for many years, and then Blackstone Audio contacted me, and I did work for them, and then the big publishers started getting into the business uh, and not, not hiring celebrities, uh, but just wanting regular old narrators to do their books, and so I started working for them. And then in 2000, late 2006, Blackstone, who I'd worked for for a long time, asked me to come out to uh, Oregon and give a seminar for some, they had set up a studio and they had hired a group of local narrators, actors, narrators, but they wanted to give them some training. And so uh, there were a couple other people who had come uh, who lived on the West coast and they said, maybe you could come out and work with these people for, you know, a few days. So we went out for a week, took my three-year-old daughter and my wife, invited us all out and we did lovely sessions during the day and at the end of the week the owner said boy i sure could use somebody to run this studio and i said oh yeah my wife said honey i think i think he's offering you a job <laughs> I said, oh. well it had just never occurred to me i was a freelance narrator what do i what what so anyway that's so three six but three months after that to my wife's shock and surprise, we moved out to Oregon. And I've been at Blackstone uh, as a producer ever since. And there he is. Wonderful. I was looking at your background and saw you'd spent some time in Baltimore at the uh, at the Everyman Theater. And I don't know if you know, but I'm based in Baltimore now. So oh. did you move from Baltimore to, to Oregon? No, we were always in the, we were in D.C. area, okay. in Maryland, just outside of D.C., in the Hyattsville. Okay, so you commuted area. to work at Everyman. I did. Wow. Okay. Yes, yeah. I drove. Well, you know, that's not now. People here say, "Oh, you mean you drove all the way over to, uh, you know, Home Depot?" And I said, "It's five minutes." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't bother me at all. After years of commuting, and yeah, you were well conditioned right. on the Beltway. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. So yes, I did, and I worked at Woolly Mammoth Theater for a long time. I was a director and actor there. Okay. In Washington. And uh, so I did a lot of theater, but when my daughter was born, I said, well, that's enough of that. And I had plenty of audiobook work and decided I didn't want to give up my weekends and, and evenings <laughs> anymore. So that was that. Wonderful. So you just mentioned that you did have some directing experience as well. Was it difficult to sort of transition into that more casting role than versus narrating audiobooks? No. Not with not with my no it wasn't not with my theater background and casting because it's really like casting a play or casting a movie. Mm. Uh, so no, I, I didn't. In fact, I enjoyed it. Um, it was easier than casting a play. You only had to cast one person, you know, who who you knew kind of would be able to, to handle the book well and had a had the right 
vocal quality and the right sensibilities for the book um, and would take the right approach. And so when you only have to cast one, it's easier than 10 or 20. Yeah, certainly. <laughs> yeah. But I look at them as the, it's the same thing. You're, you're, what you're really doing, you're casting not just a voice, but you're casting a director. Uh, you're casting a whole bunch of actors all wrapped up into one person. And you get to know the people uh, who have different different aspects of the skill set and the kinds of books that you know they're going to be comfortable doing. Um, you know, I've been given books that I'm not, I, I wish somebody had thought a little harder. Um, <laughs> not often, but in the past, I've gotten books and thought, boy, I... I don't want to turn this down, but I, I'm not, you know, I'm not the guy. Not, no, I'm not the guy to do this, uh, but I have turned down work. Um, and, you know, someone offered me a book about Vietnam grunts, you know, in the sixties, young twenties. And I said, no, <laughs> I'm not the right voice for that. You know, it was for a younger narrator with a tougher approach, not me. So anyway, mm. Uh, but you—you—that's what you're doing. Is you're—you're you're really casting somebody who you know in their head, just has a familiarity with the style and the people and the characters involved, and can is going to be able to direct the book themselves. So, what is the casting process for an audiobook like? Well, uh, you get the book, the audiobook. Your publisher licenses a book. Uh, the rights, audio rights to a book, and then they send it down to the recording department, and we take a look at it. I work with Brian Barney, who's actually my boss, uh, and he's in New York, and we have a bunch of people who work with us in the office. We've got some engineers who run our studios, and uh, kind of divvy things up and say, oh, you take these books, I'll take these, and so on and then we um you read the book and look at what's involved vocabulary research if it needs a lot of research we have a staff we have a research staff uh and we send it to them to do the research uh because we don't want the narrators to take the time or to you know worry about getting things wrong and sounds wonderful <laughs> well yeah we're well we're pretty good about that then um you you read the book and you try to think of how it should sound i mean we have a stable of people that we work with and it's big um they're not all people we work with regularly on and off sometimes you know they work with us all the time sometimes they're just people we use occasionally but you try to think of a you try to hear the voice of the book in your head and then you reach out to a few people um and hopefully you know you might ask for some auditions sometimes the author wants approval or the publisher wants approval over the narrator so you find a two or three people four people who might be suitable and let them decide uh, that's much more common nowadays. Authors are much more involved 
in audio books. They used to not even know, you know, that their books were in audio. They had no idea. But now they're very aware of audio productions. And so um, it's just it's kind of an instinctive thing. And you try to think mm -hmm. of somebody you know, somebody you trust. You know, audiobook narrator relationships are based on trust. You're handing somebody a 14, 10, 14, 20, 30-hour project, and you're sending it off to them. And three or four or six weeks later, you you got to know what you're going to get back. Mm -hmm. you, you can't. You can't take a risk. I mean, some, you know, it depends. If you're trying somebody new, you're certainly not going to send them a project so difficult that, you know, you don't know what you're going to get back. Well, that brings up so, a question. Um, sorry. Go ahead. Finish no, up. go ahead. When, when you're sending out a project to somebody new, let's say, or even if it's somebody that's been with you for a while, but it's something you're not quite sure how they're going to approach it, what kind of choices they're going to make, do you require check-ins sort of like, uh, milestones, you know, five hours, six hours in, let me hear how it's going. No, no, I probably should sometimes. <laughs> occasionally. <laughs> yeah. Occasionally I've, I've said, Oh, you know, I should have, to, you know, checked on that, but you know, we have really good proofing staff. And so they'll raise often they'll raise an alarm. If there's something, if there's something going awry with the book, they'll, drop me an email and say, you know, the narrator's kind of made this choice. I'm not sure. That, and it's like, oh, okay. And you can always go back and fix things. It's not the end of the world. Right. Um, it's just you'd rather not spend the time or waste anybody else's time. But no, most of the time, people, you you get some surprises occasionally. But most of the time, uh, I, I feel comfortable. Once I've discussed the project and we've agreed, and sometimes I'll say, send me a little sample. Um, but you, I kind of, you sense when somebody says, I understand, I get it. I say, I know what you want. And then it's like, okay, fine. Um, so no, don't worry about it too much. Once, awesome. once you've established that relationship. Right. So what I'm curious about, cause I mean, you've been involved with audiobooks almost since the industry's inception. So you've seen it change and evolve over the decades. Uh, nowadays we've got this like we have a real large change with the sort of advent of narrators recording from home and online publishers like ACX. I'm curious if that's really affected the production process from your side of things, from like the, the publisher's perspective. No. Well, you know, they started out there. Nobody, the, the business started out with home narrators. Hmm. I mean, a, a company like Books on Tape or Blackstone, to produce unabridged audiobooks, there was no way you were going to spend money on a studio and a director. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, a 30-hour, 40-hour history book, like a Will Durant, you, could, mm -hmm. you couldn't afford to do that. The big publishers only did abridged versions, and they would usually hire a, a celebrity or a semi-celebrity or, uh, a, you know, someone like that to record two or three hour versions of the books. Now this was before CDs and before downloads. Um, mm. But w w the whole business started out mostly with home narrators, people sitting in their closets, as they used to disdainfully say, <laughs> some of the big publishers. Oh, we don't use people who work in their closets. 
Well, now they don't have a problem with it because they want to save the money. But um, so, I mean, that was actually the, the, the modus operandi for the most part. Um, then the big publishers got into the business uh, and they realized that they could make money on this. So when CDs came around, they said, oh, we're going to get a studio. We need perfect sound. We need to hire a you know, real professional actor, narrator and all this stuff. So that was fine. Um, but the rest of us just kept, you know, going along with our big, long, unabridged books. Uh, what really changed everything was download. That's what changed the audiobook business mm -hmm. was audible. And that was a huge change. Uh, and it just meant, uh, it meant that all of a sudden everybody was playing on a level field. In other words, the, the you know, the, the independent audiobook companies, uh, audiobook publishers like Blackstone and books on tape and recorded books, you know, they had this unabridged thing and the library market. And they made huge amounts of money from libraries selling these big boxes of cassettes, you know, plastic cases for, you know, mm -hmm. $200 and all these library plans. That was a huge business. The download thing changed all that. All of a sudden, everybody was on the same same playing on the same field and so uh it didn't cost a big publisher had no hesitation to put out an unabridged audiobook so all of a sudden the smaller companies are competing for you know unabridged rights for all the books with the bigger uh publishers so that change that was an enormous change but it hasn't changed the way we produce books and i, I i'm actually I'm kind of impressed for the most part. I'm impressed with the industry overall uh, that the standards have remained pretty high. But, you know, you have a audiobook listeners. You don't get away with anything. They're tough. They're a tough crowd. I know. I've read my reviews. Yeah. <laughs> I know. They are. And I'm here all week, folks. You know, they are They are a tough crowd. And uh, I, I think that they have kept... And Audible, with their ratings right up there, has, you know, they've kept the publishers honest. Mm. So, because the the feedback is immediate and uh, vociferous. So, I think that has helped <laughs> to remind publishers that there's a very, very selective and picky audience out there for books. You know, you change the narrator in a series or you don't give somebody, you know, someone mispronounces a lot of books and a, a lot of words in a history book or something, boy, they're merciless. So, you know, the, the listeners, audiobook fans, keep everybody honest. Well, Grover, you mentioned that the, the industry started very much with home narrators. Do you feel like the pendulum is swinging the other way now that people like Burt Reynolds, Betty White, even Bruce Springsteen are narrating their own audiobooks? No, no, hasn't changed a thing. The more it's, you know, it takes a tiny bite. Uh, more and more authors want to read their books, even if they're not celebrities. True. Um, and especially for nonfiction. And that's, that's, a, you know, you really try to discourage them. It's awfully hard work. It is. It's grueling, and they don't understand. They oh, they do it, and then they say, oh, that was exhausting. And we say, yes, yes, we told you. Look. And, 
you know, listeners prefer, unless you really need that authenticity of, you know, like a very personal story or something, listeners really prefer professional reader. They, you know, and you look on Audible and they say, oh, couldn't the, couldn't they have gotten a pro to read this? Why does the author have to read it? So sometimes it works out and some of them are good, but for, by and large, you know, as a producer, you really say, are you, we really, this is not a good idea. But um, no, it, no, it hasn't. My gosh, I mean, we're producing, I mean, how many audiobooks a year are being produced now? We do, Audible must do 2,000 or, I don't know, an enormous number of books. Blackstone does, we do 60 to 70 titles a month. Wow. So what is that? Six times 12, 700. You know, we probably do 800, 2,000 titles a year. Wow. Um, and that's just one company, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you're talking, I don't know, 10,000 audiobooks a year coming out? No. Uh, you know, between Audible and ACX and all that stuff? No. I know. <laughs> the fact that Betty White reads her book doesn't... <laughs> Uh, you know, you. <laughs> it's it's too expensive. Actually, you know, in the old days when they did abridged books, then you were competing with stars, and a, and a big publisher like Random House or Penguin would never hire a, a just a no name narrator. They would always get a well known actor to read their abridged audio books, but they can't do that now. Mm -hmm. um, they they can't afford to do that. They'll do it for a, a big. You know, there's some celebrity readers. Will Patton, uh, Ed Herman was gone now, very sadly. But, you know, he was a wonderful reader. Will Patton's a great reader. Joe Montaigne did a lot of audio books. Tony Roberts does some books. Uh, you know, they're out there, but they're not taking a work, work away from us, mm -hmm. the rest of us. There's plenty of work out there. So with this sheer number of titles every year, I'm sure you guys are always on the lookout for new talent, and I'm sure you have plenty of talent reaching out to you, trying to see how to get on your roster. What exact, what kind of skills or qualities do you look for when you, uh, for people that you try to hire on your, your rosters? All right. Now, now you ask the question, and you're going to get my answer, and a lot of people won't like it. This is not a voiceover job and your listeners and friends need to understand that this has nothing to do with voiceover work and I've done voiceover work, um, but I don't care for it. It's, it, it's easier to do audio books, even though it's more work. It's just easier. Um, this is not a voiceover job. Mm. The quality of your voice is really irrelevant. It's irrelevant. Um, it's not about having a nice voice. It, it's the prerequisite is yes, you, you need to have a voice that's pleasant to listen to, but that's just the beginning. Um, and you, the best audiobook narrators have very unique voices. If you listen to George Goodell or Ed Herman or Frank Muller or Will Patton, uh, or, uh, any of the other really terrific uh, narrators. They're very different. Mark Bramhall. Um, I'm just throwing out some names. Alyssa Bresnahan. She's a funny, quirky voice and a quirky approach. 
that she has. It is. Um, but it's not a, it's not, it's a voice that reflects who those people are. They're interesting voices. They're not beautiful voices. They're interesting. They reflect who those people are and how they think and how they treat the material, how they absorb the material and how they convey the meaning of the story and the meaning of the book. So to get one thing out of the way, people will say, my friends tell me I have a nice voice. I should read audiobooks. Well, I don't. It's very little to do with it. The second thing is, no, it, does, it doesn't. It's about a sensibility. The nice voice is just just the one piece, tiny little piece. But it's about a sensibility. It's about uh, acting skills. You have to be a good actor. And we commonly say in the business that really stage actors almost invariably make uh, the best audiobook narrators. They're well-read, by and large. They're trained. They go through a lot of training. Uh, they've studied Shakespeare, plays, language, different languages. Um, they, they participate in, a, stage actors participate in a process where they understand the whole arc of the process, of the play. They're there all the time. You know, it's not like a film where you're brought in, it's like, just do this scene, make a face, okay, here's your little bit of the script, and you don't even see the whole script, and you just do this little bit, and then goodbye, you're done. Stage actors participate in a process of storytelling, and they learn how to effectively tell a story, and what it is to dramatize something. And they're also very well, they're used to playing multiple roles in the same evening sometimes. They're used to doing character work. They're used to, you know, changing, immersing themselves in a character at the drop of a hat. They're very good at audiobook narration because they also, they, they watch directors work. Sometimes they are directors and they understand what it means to direct a story, to, to cast a story in your head. They understand what it means to to populate the story with people. They understand what it means to visualize the settings and the uh, you know where wherever it is the story takes place. So that's one thing. Um, it doesn't pay all that well, not nearly as well as voiceover work. But for probably for the average voiceover person or person trying to get into the voiceover business. It's not bad pay, um, you know, compared to not working at all. <laughs> so, um, and, and voiceover work, that's, that's the, it's such a competitive business. But that's the thing that, it's not a voiceover job and you can't approach it. So when you approach me and say, I have a great voice and you send me a, uh, a thing where I'm supposed to listen to your voice, I almost immediately lose interest because it tells me that you don't understand what audiobook work entails. Now, I'm not, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying voiceover people are bad at it, that it's not the case. And I'm not saying that uh, 
I never consider people who don't do voiceover work. Some of the best narrators I know, Ed Herman did voiceover work. He was wonderful at it. But he didn't. I, I think a lot of people trying to get into the voiceover business are encouraged. And you can correct me if I'm wrong. They're encouraged to de to develop a sound that distinguishes them from other people. No, that's the exact coaching almost everybody gets. <laughs> Right. Right. Well, here's the problem. You start focusing on that sound. Now, I went to the Voice Arts Awards last year in Los Angeles, and that's a different world. It's amazing. And it was actually very interesting to me. And what was really interesting to me was that, was that their guest of honor for the evening. And I, I'm not mocking. Don't please don't misunderstand. I thought it was fascinating. And I understand why why they did this. But their guest of honor, their for the evening was the guy who, who, the ringmaster, and I forget his name, I apologize, because he's pretty well known in the voiceover business, but the guy who developed the tag phrase, are you ready to rumble? Oh, Michael Buffer. There you go. <laughs> and that was the, the, he was their guest for the evening. And it was a big, they had a movie about him. And, it, they, and he came out and he was lovely. He was elegant and he was you know, gave a beautiful speech and he was very generous and everybody talked about what a lovely guy he was. But the whole point of the thing was, here's a guy who conquered the voice. So, you know, who became a famous voice. And this is, you know, something you should learn from or something, you know, you should admire. Well, here's the thing in the audiobook business. That's the farthest thing from what you want. Does that make sense? No, it's yeah. perfect sense. I mean, you guys, yeah. you want right. like a chameleon who can honor the author's intent more than you want someone who just sounds pleasing to the ear. Yeah. You know what's a compliment to me was when somebody says, I don't remember who the narrator was, but the book was terrific. There you go. <laughs> it's true. I'd rather people don't even remember my name. But if they say, ah, oh, that was a wonderful story. That was a great book. I don't, I forget the narrator's name, but it was just, it was great to listen to. Well, great. You know, because then I've done my job. No news is good news in this business. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's the thing for, it's something that I had. Now that doesn't mean the people who pursue a voiceover career can't do audiobooks. That's not true. A lot of them do. Ray Chase. Uh, I don't know if you know him. He does a lot of video game stuff and big time stuff. Um, he's a wonderful narrator. And in fact, he just said, you know, I guys, I can't do books anymore because I'm so busy. And I was ready to cry because <laughs> he was terribly good at audiobook work, but he, he, he can't, he doesn't have time and he's making more money and making more quickly, you know, doing his uh, video game stuff. Um, so, uh, they can't, they do do it. You can't, it's, it's the problem is if you don't have the flexibility or the understanding to distinguish between the two and to make mm -hmm. that crossover, Ed Herman could do it because when Ed Herman did voiceover work, he would, who did he sound like? He like sounded like Ed Herman, right? Well, yeah, that's, that's, that's the gold. That's what you, the golden it's rule. It's the gold sound, standard, right? right exactly. Alexander Scorby sounded like Alexander Scorby. They didn't put on something, you know, to try to attract attention. They just were who they were. And that's, of course, that's a gold standard in the voiceover business. But it's very difficult to achieve, I think. 
It is. And and so people work to establish a sound that makes them. Now, here's the difficult thing is when you come over into audiobooks, you have to forget that because here's the rule. Whatever, as an audiobook reader, narrator, whatever you're thinking about is what I hear. And I want you to remember that because it's absolutely rock solid truth. Whatever you're thinking about, that's all I hear as a listener. So if you're thinking about how your voice sounds as you're reading the book and how you're making the sentence such an interesting uh, inflection, you know what I hear? I hear that. And, and by contrast, when, when I'm thinking about what I'm making the kids for dinner, I hear that when I play it back too. <laughs> well, exactly. But if you're thinking about where this guy is, he walked down the stairs and he opened the door. The postman was there. Suddenly, the postman pulled out a gun and waved it in the air. He started screaming. The postman was screaming. Why was he screaming at him? He looked around the neighborhood and he couldn't understand. See, I'm, I'm visualizing that in my head. And you can see it. And the best narrators, I can hear, I can hear a visualizer in a second. Because I know exactly where they're headed. And their head is in picturing everything that's going on in that book. And if they're doing it, I can do it. If they see it, I see it. But if they're, if all they're thinking about is how good their voice sounds or how, how nice they're making that book sound, that's all I hear. And I have to work to get past that. Mm -hmm. I have to think, I have to concentrate. I have to say, okay, God, this guy's voice is getting in the way. But, you know, I'll try, I'll try to listen and try to get the story, but it's just distract. I can't lose myself in the book. So, mm -hmm. and it's hard because some people go into the voiceover business because they have a voice that's real, that draws a lot of attention. <laughs> and that's why they go into the voiceover business because they have a really interesting voice. Okay, whatever. But when you turn around and you know think about audiobook work that you it's hard to get away from that for some people so let me move on to the question about who how what and how people how do i get people's attention um it's a very strange business there's a lot of word of mouth Oh, I have a friend who's an actor, and I think he'd be really good at audiobook work. You should audition him. He's really, he reads a lot, and he's really smart. And, you know, he reads a lot. That's always a good uh, sign. Um, people, you know, when someone, when longtime narrators recommend somebody to me, they don't say, this person has a great voice. They say, he's a really good actor, or she's a really good actress. And she has a nice voice, but that's not the emphasis. So anyway, word of mouth, um, people get recommended to us. Uh, you know, Bronson Pinchot was in a show with a guy who worked with us, Ray Porter, who worked with us narrating. And he said, you know, I think Bronson would be a really good narrator. <laughs> well, he's brilliant. Um, and he's, so, he's very, very busy now. Um, ACX works. It's a great training ground. And I'll tell you, if you, <laughs> if you can deal with authors and all that stuff that you have to deal with on ACX, 
you've got a good head start in the business. Um, some people, you know, I'll get a demo from someone who says I've done, you know, 10, 12, 20 books on ACX and I'm interested. And sometimes I think it's good. And sometimes I think they need more work uh, and more practice. Um, you you can send it's you know it's the catch twenty two it's it's hard to get work as an audiobook narrator unless you've worked as an audiobook narrator. <laughs> um, but you know you tr- you can scout around. The thing is you you can try small publishers. If you can if you can move your way toward and you know if you're doing some industrial work, industrial narration. Um, you know, even, you know, like training films or, uh, you know, training audios, things like that. That's a good way to start. If you're good at conveying information, you know, if, if you're doing industrials and you're good at that sort of that information thing, um, that's a good start. And for me, that's sometimes a key. You may not have done an audio book, but I listened to some uh, some. Uh, industrial work that you've done, educational work, something like that. And I'll say, yeah, you know, you're pretty good at that. And that can lead me to like, you know, a motivational book or a nonfiction, you know, mm-hmm. uh, a self-help book, something along those lines. And that's one way to transit, transition in. Look for small publishers, independent publishers, even not on ACX, but uh, outside of that, um, if you're interested, generally to me, if somebody's interested in industrial work, especially in training or informational or, uh, you know, like manuals and things where you really have to be clear, you have to be really good at settling down, not overdoing it and really selling the inf- really conveying the information in the book. To me, that's a good head start. So if that's something that you're currently doing or something that you're interested in, that's another doorway to me um, to do it. Now, if you're doing uh, character voices, if you're doing, um, you know, video work, video game, character, commercial work, you know, that kind of thing, um, that can work too. But you have to be careful because, again, it's not about how clever you are with character voices. It's about telling a story. And mm. I recently worked, tra- did a training session with a guy who was, boy, he said, I'm really good at character voices. I'm really good. And I said, oh, that's nice, but <laughs> uh, you got to be better than that. And he just wanted, desperately wanted to show off how good his character voices were. And I said, you know, that doesn't matter. It's really, it's a nice plus if you can do them, but this is not what this is about. And I really had to kind of hammer at him uh, and say, you, it's not about how good your character voices are. It's about the story, you know, and, and what's happening. What we, we as listeners, we have to be able to see what's going on in the book. It's the only chance we have to, to understand the story and to enjoy ourselves. And if you're busy you know, showing off that that misses the whole point, you know? So it's not for people looking for validation. <laughs> no, it isn't. And you get that sometimes, you know, you say, well, you get someone sends an audition and you and and you say, well, it's not, you know, it's not bad, but it's you've got to kind of lose that voiceover sound. You've got to not worry so much about the character. 
well, I have done this for 25 years and uh, I have, you know, and it's like, well, I, yeah, I'm sure you have, but you can't be defensive. You know, mm-hmm. when, when you send something off to an audiobook company and they send back a reply and say, well, you need more work. You kind of relax a little bit. There's too much energy or something. You can't, you either listen to them or don't, but if you don't, mm-hmm. You're not going to get anywhere with. They're very honest. Audiobook. This is one. You know the other thing. That you know the 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 Santa Claus video with the ho ho ho, and he tr- he has to do it five hundred different ways. You know, and there are eighteen people in the studio giving him suggestions on how to say ho ho ho. Well, we've all been through that. I've been in sessions like that where it's like you know, can you say the a little differently? And <laughs> people are breathing down your neck and. That's the voiceover business. And those people, they're, they want what they want for very specific reasons. And we all understand that. But the audiobook business isn't like that. It's not at all. People are looking to you to say, can you, can you tell me a 12-hour story? Can, can you relax and sit back and take charge and tell me a 12-hour story so that I can just, so that I can sit back and relax and just take it in? Can you do that? Because if you can, that's all we want. We don't want it. We're not going to tell you every to change every word or, you know, that you need to be a little higher or a little lower or, you know, any of that. We're, we're, we're going to trust you to do it. The question is, can you do it? Can you tell me a story and make me forget that I'm listening to you? It's amazing advice. I'm just like scribbling pages of notes right now. And I hope our listeners are too, because this is just, you're really just blowing up any misconceptions that people might have about trying to join the industry. So I really appreciate all of uh, yeah. all the knowledge you're sharing with us today. Oh, you're welcome. And the, the best producers that will tell you, audiobook producers, when they get an audition, they'll what they'll do is they'll put it in. And one producer spelled this out for me very clearly. She said, I put I put the CD in my little boom box in my office and I listen for about a minute. And if I get interested in the story and keep listening, I know that I have a potential. If I don't, then I want to, you know, if I'm not interested and I turn it off after a minute, that's that. And she said, I, I listen to see how quickly I forget that that person is reading to me. So simple, but so, so sage. <laughs> oh, it's hard. It's hard though. It's hard because you have to, you, you have to, pre- you have to forget about how you sound. And that's one of the, that's one of the hardest things for voiceover people to do because it's drilled into them that you have to pay meticulous attention to how you sound. But in audiobook work, you have to forget and you have to practice and practice and practice. Even someone who has good potential. They'll come in the studio and you can still tell that there's hesitation, that they're, you know, they're, they're listening to themselves and they're stopping themselves. And you say, don't, don't do that. Just keep going, keep going, keep going. And after three, four, five books or 10 books, all of a sudden it clicks in and you say, you know what? I don't have to think about this anymore. I don't have to think about how I sound. I just have to get into the story and picture it in my head and just read the characters because that guy sounds like this because 
you know, he weighs 400 pounds. And this person sounds like this because he's really short and he's really small and he wears little thin glasses, you know. So that all of that stuff is just coming out of how you visualize the story. People say, should I pause more? Should I go faster? Should I go slower? I don't know. What do you, <laughs> what do you, what do you see? What do you see in your head? It, you know, you, those are, those are choices. Those are things that have to come organically out of your sense of how you see the story happening in your head. And then you just tell that story and go. And sometimes, yes, you need to slow down a little bit or you read too fast. But that's those are sort of overall adjustments. But should I pause here? Should I? Well, I don't know. Do you need a pause there? Is there something happening in the pause? Is he going to answer the door? You know, it's like the old joke was that I forget who it was one of the New Yorker writers at the Algonquin Roundtable. They were arguing about a comma. You know, he got up comma and went to the door and someone said, well, you know, why do you need a comma there? It's because he has to have time to put his napkin on the table. He got up and went to the door, <laughs> which was a joke, you know, that they were they were kidding each other about. But it's true. Do you, do you need a pause because the main character is thinking for a moment or, you know, all that has to be organic. It all help, has to come out. Of, yeah. Right. Does it help me as a listener visualize the story that's going on? You know, I don't hug the microphone. Don't hug the microphone. Because, again, you're worried about, oh, you've got to get nice, tight sound, deep bass on the microphone. I'm going to talk real close. No, put it away. Get it back. Get it back a foot. <laughs> get it back 18 inches. You know, seriously. And, and move. That's another thing I've had people come in and say, well, you know, I, I just feel like I have to just be so careful about the microphone. Oh, forget it. No, you don't. I'm all over the place when I, you know, if someone's calling from across the room, I turn my head, you know, hey, over there, you know, uh, you, you have to use use the microphone. I gesture, I move my head. I'm terrible. People say, how can you move so much in the booth? But, you know, I'm aware of the microphone and I'm always directing my energy toward the microphone. But I don't sit still. I, I move around a lot. Uh, and it's all kind of controlled, but uh, that, that's because I'm doing dialogue and one person's, you know, sort of on this side of the room and this person's over on this side of the room. And, it, you know, so it's all being played out in my head visually. Well, Does that makes sense. It does. <laughs> I don't want to go on too long about it. No, no. It, believe me, it's, it's just pure gold. And we're just sort of sitting here gap jawed, taking it all in. We're, we're at rapt attention. Yeah, don't worry. <laughs> But we have all been right. talking for, you know, about 50 minutes now, so I don't want to hold you up for too long. And there was one more question we wanted to ask. I, I think I know the answer given what you've just told us, but it, given your vast experience, I want to hear your take on this. How do you think artificial intelligence and speech synthesization will affect the audiobook industry, if at all? Well, I have a long way to go, for one thing. I just heard there's a new thing called Taco or something where they, they, they come very close to the uh, the human voice. Here's the thing. When it can do, uh, you know somebody at Amazon or Audible is working feverishly day and night, you know, on this thing. There are two things, I think, 
it's possible that they'll develop something that will comfortably and convincingly read nonfiction. When it can do accents and character voices and convey emotion, well, maybe I'll be worried, but I think there are ways from that. The second thing is that you, you're going to have to convince authors that a machine can read their book, their precious work of art, better than a human being. And that's going to take some work. It's going to have to be, be absolutely indistinguishable. And I'm talking about for a complicated novel with a huge cast of characters. You know, you're going to have to convince the author that no one's going to know the difference or that the machine cares. That's the other thing. I mean, the machine doesn't care about how your book sounds. It's just doing a job. And my so only worry is that, that convincing will be done by price, where, like you said, Audible or Amazon will say, you know what, it's free to use. And then, then we're all sunk. <laughs> free, to, free for who? For the author. I mean, if they'd have to hire a narrator, let's, let's, let's say uh, Amazon rolls it into the uh Oh, the into membership. ACX or yes. something like mm -hmm. that? Exactly. Oh, well, no, that's possible. For ACX, yes. I think for any established author, established author, they're not going to buy a machine reading their book. And then you have to convince uh, listeners that they're actually getting the best product, you know, that they can. I, I'm not, well, I'm, I, I'm old enough, you know, that I'm not going to worry about it too much. <laughs> gotcha. Because I think they have a ways to go for younger guys i don't know you know they oh you know they said pixar that we're gonna there there wouldn't be any more acting jobs because everything was going to be animated well it's not true i'm sure there are people who take advantage of it. you know it'd be great for textbooks uh for mm. maybe for some nonfiction stuff i don't know you they keep saying the machines are going to replace us and or you know Animation is going to replace actors, and, uh, and it hasn't happened. And I just think there are some aspects. I mean, there are just some aspects of the arts and of books and literature and things where people, they really just don't want to hear a machine read to them. And you might be able to fool them, but if they find out it's a machine, they just won't be happy. Well, let's hope so, for all our then, sake you're right. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't I don't worry. There, there might be, you know, some I could be wrong and there might be some use for it. But uh, I, I mean, I'm trying to imagine like Robert Caro, those Lyndon Johnson biographies like volume five, if it ever comes out. Being done by a machine, I just I, I can't imagine maybe for some people it would be good enough. But it wouldn't capture what what he's put into those books. I mm -hmm. don't know. So maybe you guys should worry about it. I don't know. You're <laughs> younger than I am, but uh, I don't know. I think I think I'll hold out until then. But I I think it's going to be a tough sell. Mm -hmm. really How do you is. teach a robot to tell a story? <laughs> well, you don't. I don't. That's what I don't understand. And how do you have, you, you know, a character has a German accent or a French accent or, uh, I, I don't know. Uh, you know, not to underestimate it. You know, they're very smart about what they can do. Um, 
with these things. But I, I don't know. It's hard. It's hard for me to imagine enjoying listening to a robot telling a story. Mm-hmm. But I could be wrong. And since well, we're recording you. this, and they might be listening fifty years in the future, we have we have no disrespect for our robot overlords. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, I love you guys, whoever you are. Yeah. Well, I love your idea about us somehow getting it to coexist, like having essentially like automated narrators for projects that real people wouldn't want to narrate. So maybe we can find like that golden medium at some point. Thank you guys. It's been great. Yeah. I just wanted to thank you so much. I mean, this has been a real treat and just like, like I said, just destroying those misconceptions about people who might be trying to get into audiobooks as like supplementary income or like an easy way to get into voiceover. Not for you. People who are natural storytellers or want to develop their storytelling ability and who have solid acting and really want to just author or excuse me honor the author's story that then audiobooks may be for you but i mean it's yeah. been it's been wonderful having you grubber so thank you so yeah. much and i'll just say to be encouraging for a lot of people struggling in the voiceover business this could actually be a, a huge beneficial switch for them Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they could be struggling to make some mark in a in this incredibly cutthroat competitive business. And then they turn to audiobooks and they say, well, really, I like this telling stories, things about people flying in spaceships or dragons doing. And it could be liberating for them. So I certainly hope that's the case for some of your listeners. Well, I'm inspired, at least. So, <laughs> so am I. Grover, thanks again so much for being on the VO Meter. You're welcome. Thank you, guys. It was a pleasure. So once again, thanks to Grover Gardner. That was just an amazing interview. What did you think, Sean? Uh, I can't agree with you more. I mean, he's been in the industry for so long, for three decades. I mean, he's been on both sides of the class. He knows exactly, like, I mean, he's an accomplished narrator himself. He knows exactly what he's looking for as a casting director. And like I said, just the information that he was sharing is just so useful for anyone who wants to get involved with audiobooks and who like it really challenges the current misconceptions that we see today uh, as because every year like you can just see the floods of new talent trying to get involved and then falling by the wayside when it's like oh it's not what I thought it would be but um, I think like we just need to direct into this episode and be like see that's why you fail <laughs> and once again I want to say okay. for the record we three welcome our robot overlords <laughs> I love that line for the Simpsons <laughs> I know, I know. (laughs) Before we wrap up, I just wanted to thank our guest, Grover Gardner. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you to Sean Pratt, uh, audiobook narrator and coach. He's a fantastic guy. He actually referred us to uh, Grover. So thank you, Sean, if you're listening. So that wraps up this episode of the VO Meter. Measuring your voiceover progress. And as our good friend Sean Pratt always says, tell me a story, damn it. Thanks for listening to the VO Meter, measuring your voiceover progress. To follow along, please visit www.vometer.com 